The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. We come now to a time to open up our Bibles, and so uh, if you have not already, let us open together. We are turning to Genesis in the Old Testament and chapter 22. It's on page 16, and uh, there are other page numbers there if you have a different Bible, but whatever Bible you have, I hope you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, Genesis 22, uh, as we uh, look back into the Old Testament about the faith of our father, the life of Abraham, and we've learned many, many things thus far, but uh, let let me introduce the text to you today by saying, I remember from maybe my earliest English classes, and I have to confess that English classes weren't always my favorite subject in school, I was more interested in history than, than English, but every single English class I ever took always taught me that every single story, no matter what the story is about, every single story generally follows a similar plot, right? Stories have plot lines, or sometimes they're called story arcs. Every story has one of them. You begin with some kind of introduction where you're introduced to characters or some type of conflict. There is a rising action moving towards a climax of a situation and then falling action moving towards a conclusion or a resolution, right? A general storyline that is true of almost all stories. And I imagine if you could think of anything in your mind, a story you know, a fairy tale, a movie, you could lay that plot line, that plot arc over that story and know where the climax is and how all the pieces fit together. Well, just to illustrate this, I thinking uh, went and see, you know, what is... What are the 10 most popular movies of all time? And what, what movie am I going to pick out to illustrate that point? Even though it's very clear. Come to find out, I don't like 8 out of the 10 top grossing movies of all time. And uh, also come to find out that one of them that is decent is a movie that I referenced a couple of weeks ago, which happened to be Titanic. Okay, so how does the story arc of every story fit over Titanic? Everybody knows. You're introduced to the characters, you have the rising action, they're on the boat, and it's moving to the climax of the iceberg and the falling action of the ship sinking, and the ending is that lady throws that diamond in the water, right? Everybody knows that stories have these arcs, these plots, But what we don't oftentimes think about is how these outlines of story plots relate to the Bible story. And not just the individual stories in the Bible, but also the story of the Bible across the entire thing. If you take the the layout, the plot arc of stories and put it on the Bible, what is the outline plot arc of the Bible. And that's something that I want us to think about today. But in order to do that, I want us to lay something of the plot arc storyline in one particular story in Genesis chapter 22. Now, we have together in 2019 been learning about Abraham's story since Genesis chapter 12. And if you just want to take a very quick peek at the text, you'll see in verse 1 it says, after these things. Well, the these things of chapter 22, verse 1, is the things that we've been learning about all this year. The story of Abraham, 
these several decades of God's call of his life, his obedience, his disobedience, Abraham's struggles, Abraham's faithfulness, God's promises to Abraham, uh, Sarah's childlessness, even though God had promised a child, and then after many, many years, Isaac's birth. But now in chapter 22, in the midst of this story of the life of Abraham that we've been looking at this year, chapter 22 is the climax of the story of Abraham. And in that sense, chapter 22 is among the most exciting chapters of all of Genesis. Not because on the surface the content is inherently excitable, but rather the drama associated in chapter 22 moves to such a dramatic climax that we can't help but be drawn in to what's happening here and understand the climax of the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Now, I can tell you that it's the climax because... If you also peek ahead in verses 20 through 24, you'll find a genealogy. And in the book of Genesis, genealogies represent a transference of theme or topic or moving on to the next storyline or individual. The fact that there is a brief genealogy at the end of chapter 22 signals that a major transition is happening at the end of chapter 22. And the remainder of the details about Abraham and Genesis are just going to be some incidental details that clean up the storyline and move toward the next generation. But chapter 22, again, is the climax. We've been moving to this point, and now we are finally here to say that this is the epicenter of the story of Abraham in Genesis. So I pray that we will understand what God's word has to say to us today, but in order for that to be uh, for sure, let us pray before we approach God's word. Our great God, how we thank you for the Bible and what a merciful grace it is that we have a Bible that we can read in our own language and even an embarrassment of riches, multiple copies of the scriptures all around us. And yet, Lord, we confess how infrequently we turn to your word. So, Lord, we are a people whose hearts are weary, who struggle with faithlessness and we struggle with grief. And, Lord, we are a people in need of hope today. So, Lord, in your word, would you show us Jesus and teach us that he is enough for our every need. We pray that by your Holy Spirit who moved Moses to record this word for us, that your spirit would descend upon our hearts to illuminate our minds, to make our ears ready to hear and our hearts able to obey. And so, Lord, come, we pray. In the power of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Genesis in chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Booz his brother, Camuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jildaf, and Bethel, Bethel, father of Rebekah. These eight Milcal bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ramah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Makkah. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. And so may he write his eternal truth upon our hearts today. Uh, you have an outline on the back side of your handout inside your bulletin, and if it's helpful to you to see that, uh, I encourage you to look there. I want to waste no time because this text is so very important. Uh, let me first acknowledge that what we experience when we come to this text is a number of things, but let me first point out the fact that you and I enjoy a privilege in approaching this text because we have a reader's privilege. 
right away in verse 1, let's not forget the fact that we learn and we understand from the beginning of this incredibly dramatic narrative that this is a test. We have that privilege of seeing that, that God is here testing Abraham. Does God test us? The answer is yes, he does. He tests us in order to stretch our faith and increase it and cause it to grow stronger, just like physical exercise stretches a muzzle so that it might grow stronger. So too does God stretch our faith and thereby grow it and increase its strength. Now, also remember that the book of James tells us that although God tests us, he never tempts us to sin. He does test us, but he does not tempt us. But Abraham is here tested by God, and because of this, Abraham is remembered for us as the chief figure of faithfulness in the Bible. When you think of faith, you are to think of Abraham, faithful Abraham, as the grand example of faithfulness in biblical history. But we have this privilege that Abraham did not have. Abraham doesn't know this is a test. All he is experiencing is the narrative that is reported to us that we see there that we know is a test, but that he does not. And so we must understand that context and appreciate the drama in this narrative because of what Abraham is experiencing. So let's look again at what we see here and we'll see, first of all, God's command and then Abraham's obedience and then Isaac's substitute. Those three things. But first of all, we want to see in verses 1 and 2 God's command. Notice how faithful and attentive Abraham is when he receives God's call. God calls out to him, Abraham, and he responds, here I am. Abraham has learned throughout these seasons, throughout these decades, that when God calls, we are to respond in faithfulness. Here I am, Lord. But then right away, notice this piercing command in verse 2. Verse 2, God said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Do you notice how in verse 2 there is a rising, emphatic tension as God speaks? Do you see the way it builds? Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. It would have been enough to say at one time. And yet the emphatic nature of God's command is to say, Abraham, the only son you have, the one whom you love, your covenant son, the one who's to be the heir of your household, the one who's to be the inheritor of all of my covenant promises, that son, Abraham, Remember how long Abraham waited for Isaac to be born? Remember how painful it was for him? Remember how distressing it was for him to wait? And now the son is finally here, and he's grown up in Abraham's household, and he loves him dearly, and it is this son. Remember that Ishmael's been sent away. There was another son, but Abraham sent him away. And the reason why God commanded Abraham to send Ishmael away was so that in chapter 22, the command would be so emphatic as to say, there's no plan B. There's no son number two. It's just Isaac. But that's the one, Abraham. 
offer him as a burnt offering. Now, Abraham, in historical context, would know the terrible details of exactly what that means. Because Abraham grew up in the land of Ur, of the Babylonian kingdom in which they practiced human sacrifice. But human sacrifice had not been a part of Abraham's life since he left that pagan land. He's been living in the land of God's promise. He's been living in obedience to God's word. And now that word comes to him and says, Abraham, in a burnt offering, offer your son. And burnt offerings were a part of ancient Eastern worship, except it was usually an animal, not a person like in the pagan lands. And burnt offerings, and you'll have to excuse the graphic details here, but just just so we're all very clear on what this means, burnt offering involved first the slitting of the throat of the animal, dismemberment, and then the consumption of all parts on a fire. Abraham, your son. Now, if we've been paying attention, and if we've been interacting with Abraham throughout this narrative, we know that Abraham has struggled to obey God. But what we're going to get to here is an instance in which we don't hear any report of a struggle. And yet, that causes us to ask some questions, even to demand a few answers, okay? It is likely that you hear this text and you say, why is God doing this? Why would God command this? Why is God testing Abraham in this way? God is asking Abraham to act against common sense and his natural affections and his lifelong hope. Genesis has been saying for a dozen chapters, this son is so valuable. This son is the heir of the covenant. This son has the hope of nations in his blood. Sarah's childlessness and now the fulfillment and now to be offered as a sacrifice And it flies in the face of everything Abraham has learned thus far, isn't it? See very clearly that Abraham receives from God no explanation as to why. Just the commandment to do. Now, we pause there and recognize the fact that, friends, there will be times in your life when you have zero explanation from God as to what he is doing and because he is God and you are not because we are the creature and he is the creator we are not entitled to an answer to every question and that is just a disposition of your heart that you must attain in order for you to grow in Christian maturity a willingness to not demand an answer to every question. Now, to be sure, there are things that we can know about God. There are things about his character and truths about who he is that we can know and we should have assurance about. There are some people who absolutely despise this notion that you can have any confidence about God, that you can claim any knowledge of God. And they say, you can't know that about God. Well, the answer is yes, you can, because the Bible gives you all kinds of things for which you can be confident about God and what he's doing in your life. But just because he gives you some general answers and just because he gives you some instruction in your word doesn't mean that God tells you everything. 
And there are some things in our lives for which he will give no explanation. And this text is not instructing us to demand answers to every question. It instead points us to something so staggeringly different. Abraham does not demand from God answers to his questions. What does he do in the second place? God commands and he obeys. Secondly, Abraham's obedience in verses 3 through 12. Look at it again in verse 3. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God told him. You can imagine that Abraham would be perhaps justified to drag his feet in the obedience of this command. He gets up early to obey God. He sets out on this three-day journey to go to a place of which God will say, I'll tell you when you get there. Not just go to this place, but I'll, you go and I'll say stop when it's time. Now, these details in the text, and again, Moses writes this under divine inspiration here. It's so matter-of-fact, isn't it? it? It just gives these details of bare obedience. Abraham did what God said. But we want more than that, right? We want to know what's going on in the space between Abraham's ears, right? What's he thinking? Like, what in the world is going to happen to me? What's Sarah going to say when I come back without a child with that child's blood on my hands. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? The text does not tell us anything about any of that. Isn't that fascinating? It just reports bare obedience. It reports the fact that Abraham is a man to whom God says, I give you this command, and Abraham says, Yes, Lord. Abraham set his face to do what God commanded. Now, you know what? People have been wrestling with this text for generations. I remember my brother in college gave me a book by a Danish philosopher that he had been studying in his undergraduate named Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote a book called Fear and Trembling, and it was all about the dismantling of this event, asking almost every question. How could God do this? How could God do that? What does faith mean in this circumstance and in that circumstance? So many people have approached Genesis 22 and then walked away saying, this is not a God who is worthy of worship. This is an evil God. This is an evil command. They take issue with all of it. And in some ways, I think we can be sympathetic to that approach. If if we don't understand what God is doing in the big picture. And if you need help to find the big picture in the midst of all this, uh, John Calvin helps us here. He demonstrates what's really at stake in Genesis 22. It's not just a son. It's not just Isaac. Listen to what Calvin said, that, that great 16th century reformer. He said this, The great source of grief to Abraham is not his own bereavement. Not that he was commanded to slay his only son. The hope of future memorial and of his own name, the glory and support of his family, that's not the biggest issue for Abraham. It's not the loss of Isaac, and it's not killing his own son. 
What's really at stake here is this. That in the person of Isaac, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished and to perish. Because it is through this son that God's salvation would come. But if that son is extinguished, what will happen of God's salvation? Will the story of scripture dramatically end here? Is really the issue that's going on here. That in the big picture of the story of Abraham, Isaac was the child through whom the covenant blessings would flow and with it the story of salvation. And God has promised again and again and again, Abraham, my word is true. My promises are true. Through your offspring, the nations of the earth will be blessed. But what happens when that offspring is laid on the altar of sacrifice? Do the promises become null and void when that son dies? How does Abraham deal with this? And in one sense, Genesis 22 says nothing about that, except we do have insights in this text and in other texts that help us. We get two insights right away, first in verse 5 and then in verse 8. As you're seeing Abraham's obedience, we have two clues here. First of all, look in verse 5. If you're not looking at verse 5, why not? You're missing it. Look at verse 5. It says, When they arrive at Mount Moriah, Abraham tells his servants that he's gone on this three-day journey with alongside Isaac. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, there's something here in verse 5, but English teachers love the fact that it takes some grammar understanding to see it. It's more clear in the original Hebrew language than it comes out in the English, but it's still there in the English language. Abraham is saying to the servants, Guys, I and the boy, he's speaking about what he and Isaac will do. Do you see it? These are first person plural. We. It's what we will do. Both Abraham and Isaac. Abraham says to the servants, we will go, we will worship, and we will come back. Isn't that perplexing based off of what God has commanded him to do? It's that third one. We will come back. Do you know what the book of Hebrews says about this? If you don't know this, I put it on your outline. Go home and read it later. The book of Hebrews interprets Abraham's thoughts in this narrative and says this, that Abraham was the one who had received the promises from God and that when he was in the act of offering up his son, he concluded that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. In other words, Abraham had the covenant promise in one hand and the command to kill Isaac in the other hand. And Abraham reconciles these two things by saying, his word is true and his command is to be obeyed. And so therefore, God must be able to raise the son that I will kill from the dead. That's exactly what the book of Hebrews says about this. 
And verse 8 supports that notion as well. Not just verse 5, but verse 8. It says, when Isaac asks Abraham, Father, where's the lamb? You're preparing a sacrifice, but where is the animal to be sacrificed? Abraham responds with what? God will provide it. God will provide. And the word provide here actually comes from a Hebrew word that means to see. Abraham is telling Isaac, God will see to it. God will see to it. God will make sense of this. God will do what he must do in this. Abraham is teaching us here that even when he is not sure what God is doing, he is sure of God. That though sometimes God is baffling, he is still trustworthy. Though God is sometimes mysterious, he is always righteous. God will see to it. And that is a lesson that we must learn alongside of Abraham. Finally, as this story comes to the dramatic climax and Isaac's substitute verse 13 through 19 the story slows down even more to this excruciating pace verse 9 says when they came to the place of which God had told him Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to and in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son In 1634, the the painter Rembrandt made a a rendering of this. And it's it's very dramatic, of course, because the, the text is dramatic. It depicts Abraham with his full open palm over the face of Isaac, holding him down. And with the other hand, the knife, ready to slit his son's throat. And at one moment, the angel appears grabs Abraham's hand and you see the knife suspended in air as if to say the angel from heaven has intervened staying the hand of Abraham Abraham who is willing to not withhold even his own son in obedience to God the sacrifice before God is essentially made he was willing and now the command is withdrawn Abraham has passed the test And when Abraham lifts up his eyes, he sees the ram caught in the thicket at the end of verse 13. At the end of verse 13, it says that this ram was offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And here you find this all-important principle in the Bible of substitution. The fire was made ready for Isaac, but rather than Isaac, God has provided a ram in Isaac's place. It's exactly what Abraham said back in verse 8. God will see to it. God will provide. Which is why in verse 14, this place is called, The Lord will provide. But we also see this description that looks a little bit forward at the end of verse 14. It says, Moses gives us this detail, As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, here's where we want to draw this together, okay? Because something is happening here and you don't want to miss it. Anyone who says the Bible is boring is outside their mind. This is riveting. Where is this happening? Mount Moriah. Second Chronicles tells us that Solomon built the temple 
on Mount Moriah. What happens at the temple? The animal sacrifices on behalf of the people's sins. Where the animal sacrifices would be offered for generations of Abraham's children, but the Bible tells us that these can never take away sins. They can only cover sins. That's why Genesis 22 is one story inside of this incredible story of all the Bible of what? Abraham has led his son up the mountain, and in the New Testament we learn of the father leading his only son up the exact same geographical place, except outside the temple. The father will offer his son, his only son, whom he loves, Jesus, except Unlike Genesis 22, there will be no angelic messenger to stop the hand of the Father from coming down upon the Son. The ram goes under the knife instead of Isaac. Jesus goes under the wrath of God instead of you and me. Isaac is not the Savior. Isaac can only die on his own behalf, not on yours or not on mine. But Jesus Christ is the true seed of Abraham. In Jesus Christ, the nations are blessed. He is the true Son of God, sinless, who was offered up in the place of, in substitutionary death, for sinners like me and like you, so that in Jesus Christ, the blessings of Abraham might go to all the nations, and those who are not Jews might be grafted into the family of God and become one people with one Father and one Savior. That's the story of the Bible. And it is moving in this direction. The climax of Genesis 22 is that Isaac is spared. The climax of the biblical story is that the son is not spared, but that through his death there is resurrection. And the death and resurrection is the climax of the biblical story, and it is moving towards a conclusion, isn't it? But it's a conclusion that's not here yet. So that the falling action of the biblical story is that those people who would look upon Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel might come to him and realize that he is the atoning sacrifice for their sins. Genesis 22 is about that story. And so just one application. You know, there's a million applications here, but here's one just one, and it's the really only one that matters most of all. Genesis 22 calls for you to respond in faithful trust to Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. The true son of Abraham to reaffirm your faith or maybe perhaps, loved ones, to lay hold of Jesus Christ truly in your heart for the first time. But to look upon Christ and find in him a worthy Savior because you stand in need of that Savior. To trust God that even when you don't know what he is doing, you know for sure what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. And you come to the conclusion that it's enough. Genesis 22 is speaking the gospel to us so clearly so that in both 
word today and in sacrament, we have Jesus Christ offered to us. Let us respond faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible word. Lord, the Bible is breathtakingly exciting and awe-inspiring that you would love sinners like us. And so, Lord, help us to see you as our Father who loves us, who cares for us, who provides for our sins, that we might never seek shelter in ourselves, but always run to Jesus Christ and find in him all of our hope. Oh, Lord, how needful we are, how ready you are to forgive. And so, Lord, bless us, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.